Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. A new open letter signed by a number of prominent pundits and intellectuals warns of a growing problem with cancel culture. The letter expresses concern that, quote, a new set of moral attitudes and political commitments are weakening norms of open debate and toleration of differences in favor of ideological conformity. Joining me now is Max Blumenthal, editor of The Gray Zone, author of The Management of Savagery. Max, you know, nothing to me on the surface wrong with encouraging open debate, but then you look at the signatories and you have a bunch of people who have been opposed, I think, to the very values they claim to be defending here. What is your response to this letter? I fully agree with the concept of open debate. I'm someone who has, and you know, you faced it too, and we can get into that, uh, where people who have faced the brunt of cancellation or discourse suppression campaigns uh, because we take views that are out of the mainstream, and I would argue that are actually threatening to the very establishment that these most of the figures who signed this letter represent. I mean, with a, with a few exceptions, very notable exceptions, what you see in this letter is a coalition of liberals or even what, I'll, what I would call hyper-liberals, which is a definition I'll get into later, and sort of neoconservative people, people on the center-right, pro-Israel figures. Um, and they're all coming together because they feel this unprecedented challenge to their intellectual and political authority. Um, let's talk about who's on that letter. I think the issue really comes down to the hypocrisy of the individuals and the complete lack of self-awareness that brings all of the contradictions of this uh, sort of failing intellectual establishment and liberal intelligentsia to the surface. Um, the most obvious example here would be Barry Weiss, who sort of launched her political career at Columbia University attempting to cancel Joseph Mossad, who is, I would argue, the premier Palestinian academic um, whose you know work goes far beyond um, Palestinian issues. And we've hosted him on Moderate Rebels. Um, he's someone I've always looked up to, certainly someone that any, any academy any institution of higher learning should value on their campus. And Barry Weiss set out with this campaign, working hand in glove with powerful pro-Israel groups that were funded to the hilt by wealthy interests like the David Project to destroy Joseph Mossad's career on the false grounds that he was a Jew hater, simply because he was actually just being a Palestinian. Um, you have Carrie Nelson, who is an American history professor, I believe, who supported the campaign to cancel Stephen Salaita, another Palestinian academic who uh, had his tenure canceled or a tenure track position canceled at the University of Illinois. Uh, Carrie Nelson was one of the main cheerleaders for that. He's a very pro-Israel figure. And he didn't believe that Salaita's strident commentary um, had any place. Basically, Salaita said things he disagreed with, and in a McCarthyite fashion, they went to the trustees and got rid of him. This was during the summer of 2014 when Israel was relentlessly bombing Gaza, massacring civilians. You were there, Max. You covered this. Salaita, who's Palestinian, was frustrated, and he voiced that on Twitter. And this is what— Yeah, he said something He said something like, uh, you know, if Netanyahu wore a necklace of Palestinian children's ears, the U.S. government wouldn't and the media wouldn't care. And, you know, that's that's pretty much true. It's kind of like Trump saying he could shoot someone on Fifth Ave and his supporters wouldn't turn on him. I mean, that's true for Netanyahu as well, but it's, it's 
I mean, the point is the spirit of this letter is that people should be able to state unpopular and strident opinions without fearing losing their jobs. And that's exactly what Salaita did. And Kerry Nelson supported him losing his job. And he was branded an anti-Semite. Um, you know, you've got people like Katha Pollitt, who you've dealt with at the nation, the um, sort of uh, the, the feminist standard bearer as, of, uh, at the nation, who also represented the, the kind of his, the Russiagate brigade and signed a letter basically seeking to drive out any skeptics of this completely discredited imperialist Cold War narrative that you've gone against. So you, she was targeting you, uh, people like Patrick Lawrence, and she wrote libelous pieces about Matt Taibbi seeking to paint him, and I believe Mark Ames, who is his partner at the exile, falsely as rapists. And if I'm not incorrect, the nation had to issue a formal apology because of those columns, and she was trying to link their um, skepticism on Russiagate to their hatred, so their, their supposed hatred of women. It was completely defamatory. But here you have another blatant hypocrite. Uh, Shadi Hamid is someone who signed that letter. Uh, Shadi Hamid has gone on Twitter and celebrated my supposed marginalization and Ben's supposed marginalization. He wants us to be marginalized <laughs> and uh, says, you know, no one takes us seriously and that's great. And then he called me an Arab, uh, someone who doesn't care about Arab lives, um, which I mean, I think is transparently ridiculous, but it's even funnier coming from someone like him who went on a pro-Israel propaganda trip sponsored by a Christian Zionist organization. Um, Supported regime change wars that have destroyed countless Arab and African lives uh, in Libya and uh, then in Syria. And that's another, I mean, that's another form of canceling people, isn't it? I mean, when you're killing people. So you have Anne-Marie Slaughter, who was the, um, the like the policy chief for Hillary Clinton in the State Department. She's the president of the New America Foundation, this giant, uh, basically Clintonite liberal foundation in the middle of Washington, D.C., which is funded by the State Department and Google and corporate America, oil industry. And she not only canceled Zephyr Teachout um, and her um, initiative, which was basically dedicated to how free markets generate inequality because Google was upset with what Teachout was doing. But Anne-Marie Slaughter was deeply involved in not only the military intervention in Libya, but conceiving the doctrine, the phony responsibility to protect doctrine that justified it. And she was one of the key figures pushing Obama to intervene in Syria as well. This is someone who would never debate anyone to their left, who has never been held accountable for these colossal failures. Um, and they're not just failures. In many ways, they were successes. They successfully destroyed independent countries that refused to toe the line of the United States. David Frum is another figure who has participated in pro-Israel, anti-Palestinian cancellation campaigns and who is it was intimately involved in the campaign to cancel the government of Iraq, to blow up government buildings in Iraq, to destroy an entire nation and destroy a region. So where where is the self-awareness there? Why does he why does this person feel like he has the unlimited right 
to walk around saying whatever he wants, and he still gets to along with Bill Maher on Politically Incorrect. He's on MSNBC every day. He never gets challenged about his unrepentant war criminality. Where's the self-awareness there? And then there's Gloria Steinem. Gloria Steinem signed this letter. You know, she's known as a, you know, the, the an icon of second wave feminism, but she also was a CIA asset, admitted, admittedly, uh, who worked with the, the CIA front group, the Congress of Cultural Freedom, Congress on Cultural Freedom to cancel communists and socialists and black militants or black radicals within the left. That was her specific intention in, in collaborating with the CIA was to drive a wedge within the left, an anti-communist wedge, and to prevent them from gaining a platform. I had uh, the conventional liberals view of the CIA as a right-wing incendiary group. And I was amazed to discover that this was far from the case, that they were enlightened, liberal, nonpartisan activists of the sort who characterized the Kennedy administration, for instance. So there's a complete lack of self-awareness on her part here when it comes to open debate. And, uh, you know, I could go on and on. There are figures that I can't even believe got on the letter because I don't know what they've produced intellectually. Chloe Valdery is someone who many people watching this would have never heard of. Really? In free democratic America, you have no other options? Does this apply to all ethnic groups? Hispanics? Southeast Asians? Pacific Islanders? Of course not. But we, the enlightened ones, are ready with a pre-packaged list of excuses when blacks riot and loot. Um, but who is just a pure product of the Israel lobby, who is a um, messianic Christian, who would attack anti-Zionist Jews as anti-Semitic, and was involved indirectly or directly in just a whole array of blacklisting, McCarthyite initiatives that were very similar to the Canary Mission, where Palestinian students and students who participated in Palestine solidarity activism had dossiers appear on an anonymous website backed by the Israel lobby. Um, anything they said that was impolitic, uh, or considered extreme, you know, and we all say extreme things when we're, you know, in high school and college, but it all shows up on social media now. It went into their dossiers. Uh, one student at Seton Hall Law was actually interrogated by the FBI after going up on the Canary Mission. Um, this is the, and this was the stated intention of the website. According to the Islamophobe Daniel Pipes, the website aimed to deny students who participate in Palestine solidarity activity on campus the ability to get jobs after graduation. This is the ultimate cancellation project. And here you have someone who was at least a supporter of it at the time that it was rolled out, and who was just one of the most toxic, Islamophobic, anti-Palestinian activists that I ever encountered on Twitter. So why was, how did this person even get invited onto the letter? And what, I mean, how was the letter even distributed? It's just so bizarre and offensive. But the, what, what, what also offends me so much is that, you know, when there were coordinated campaigns, for example, to cancel my book, The Management of Savagery, to first pressure my publisher, Verso, into not publishing it, then to uh, prevent me from having a book tour by convincing venues not to host me, very coordinated fashion. Nobody associated with this list 
said a word. Same thing. Same thing when I was yeah. Because your book challenged, and you and you have increasingly over for for many years now challenged the core narratives when it comes to justifying the the U.S. backed proxy war on Syria. Yeah, and I think that that really highlights uh, a, a, a like a deeper contradiction in the debate around this letter, which is that many of the most strident critics of the letter only agree on only disagree on social issues but there's a general agreement around the overall hyperliberal agenda between many of the critics of the letter and many of the people who put their names on it what we're really witnessing here in the sort of in the in the debate that's playing out in mainstream media over this letter and over the substance of the letter, which is really about identity politics on campus and in elite circles, is, a, is an internecine liberal debate. This is really a debate among elite liberals from the professional managerial class who march in lockstep on issues of regime change. They march generally in lockstep on Russiagate and on uh, U.S. foreign interventionism. Maybe there's some differences there on Palestine because it's seen in liberal circles now as a as a human rights issue, and Netanyahu is seen as this card-carrying Republican who's annexing the West Bank and doing away with the two-state solution. But when it comes to Syria, that's still a red line, and no one is going to defend your ability to have an open debate about it. There is no open debate, and so that's I think that's sort of a separate issue from my initial critique of this letter, but. Um, that's what I, where I think a lot of the outrage from the letter comes from is that this is an internecine debate among elite liberals. Yeah. And, you know, as you touched on, if so many of these people have been canceling people who dissent for so long, and then what is this letter about now? And why is it coming along now? And I wonder if it would be happening if not for the massive Black Lives Matter protests right now. And this sense that from these more established liberals that their ability to dictate, you know, the conversation and the talking points that it's slipping from them. And so this is a way for them to sort of reestablish control by basically painting themselves as victims of this growing cancel culture when, you know, as you say, they have been the biggest purveyors of cancel culture for many decades. Well, one, one of the episodes that's alluded to in the letter, everything's sort of an illusion, there's insinuations, but we don't know exactly what they're referring to in the letter. And I only said, you know, that I support the general concept of open debate. I mean, who can really disagree with that? But one of the episodes that's alluded to is clearly the firing of James Bennett, who was the op-ed page uh, editor-in-chief at the New York Times, actually the brother of the neoliberal Democrat Senator Michael Bennett. But he was fired for publishing, actually soliciting an op-ed by the neoconservative Senator Tom Cotton on sending the military into American cities to crack down on these Black Lives Matter protests. And I think, you know, Bennett, I had no sympathy for the guy. He definitely had to go. But where was the outrage on everything else the New York Times published? Uh, everything else that ran under its letterhead on the op-ed page under the watch of Bennett calling for... Uh, military adventures that would have amounted to mass extermination uh, from, from Iraq to Syria to all the other targets 
of U.S. regime change, everything else that Tom Cotton was publishing about Iran, there wasn't an internal there wasn't internal pressure on James Bennett then. There wasn't internal pressure when John Bolton called to bomb Iran, was there? I mean, you can think of so many editorials that ran under that letter, letterhead that were just not just offensive, but were essentially incitement to mass violence against people in the global south. And there was no outcry, very little at least. Yeah, the critique of so many Times journalists who protested this internally was that Tom Cotton's letter threatened basically violence against them. And you can debate that, but you know, let's accept that uh, as being correct. Well, then where then is the protest, as you say, when the New York Times are running op-eds like you mentioned John Bolton? It's literally called to stop Iran's bomb, bomb Iran. So you have op-eds for years threatening, you know, uh, massive violence against populations across the world. And there's no peep at all from anybody inside the New York Times. And I guess that's something we should talk about is that the um, in all this discussion and all these discussions, the violence that is inflicted on populations abroad by the U.S., it's not factored in. <laughs> and as you said before, there is those the few people who try to like talk about that issue when they get canceled, there's no effort to defend them at all. Yeah, I mean, from the point of view of many of the people who felt pers- you know, personally attacked by Bennett's piece, but didn't feel personally attacked by calls for mass violence against Iranians, against Venezuelans, policies that would cause famine in Venezuela, uh, these people are essentially hyper-liberals who are completely blinkered to the world outside U.S. borders and outside their elite bubble. And this is a debate that we're seeing play out, as I said before, within the professional managerial class, where a wing of that class wants a New York Times or a Vox or Princeton University that looks more like America, uh, that's more diverse. Um, I actually saw a letter that's being circulated at Princeton right now calling for more diversity in appointments and chairs, endowed chairs and so on. There's nothing in the letter about divesting from the arms industry, divesting from companies involved in Israeli apartheid, uh, about the uh, the, the 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 whole meaning of the Ivy League University, or where I went at the University of Pennsylvania, Ad, Adolf Reed, uh, the political scientist at Penn, is exactly right. Um, the sort of the University of Pennsylvania wants three things: increasing its endowment, being able to continue to gentrify the traditionally black West Philly, just taking over large parts of the areas and displacing people and more diversity to look more like America. And that's really the agenda that's playing out within this debate um, with a new generation coming into these elite liberal institutions. And when I say hyper-liberalism, what they represent is today's Democratic Party. It's a Democratic Party that's cast off its working class base, that doesn't answer to unions anymore because unions have been sufficiently weakened. They've given up on Rust Belt areas and ceded that ground to right-wing pseudo-populists like Donald Trump. And so they exploit social issues to appeal to different constituencies based on their identities. Um, And they're elites who have skin in the imperial game. 
Uh, so many of them, like in Washington, D.C., where I am right now, so many of the people you see coming into the city, the new transplants are coming to work for contractors that have business with the military. Um, gentrification is driven by federal contracts and by the military industrial complex in D.C. And they are also extremely liberal. And many of them would be supportive generally of the Black Lives Matter protests, at least to the extent that they're peaceful. Um, so with skin in the imperial game, that's why you see so much support for something like Russiagate within the Democratic Party. Um, and it got so goofy and so far from the truth because it's not an actual, it, it's not about facts. It is an identity issue for many of these people who comprise the, you know, the new Democratic Party's constituency and base. And it's a proxy for nationalism among people who are liberal on social issues. Putin and Trump were seen as these hyper-masculine figures who are engaged in a bromance. And because Trump is seen as weakening the empire, you saw these murals go up in bastions of hyper-liberalism like the West Village, where Putin is embracing a pregnant Trump naked. Uh, and Trump, you know, has been impregnated by the Russian evil hyper-masculine leader. And ironically, the narrative descends into homophobia. Um, the New York Times and The Guardian are bastions of hyper-liberalism. And we see all of these telling episodes play out where, for example, The Guardian, um, in this March, published an editorial by someone named Suzanne Moore. It was called, Women Have the Right to Organize. We Will Not Be Silenced. And it articulated many of the views that I've heard from feminists, with feminist women and radical feminist women about the trans issue, um, that they do not necessarily see trans women as exactly like themselves as biological women. It's not a debate I'm trying to get into here. I'm not taking a position. I see it as a women's issue and I'm not, I'm not taking a position. I just want to use this episode to illustrate hyper-liberal culture. 338 employees signed a petition at The Guardian to protest that letter. They were, they were furious. They were hopping mad. People said that they felt unsafe to go to work. Okay, fine, fine. Um, I think there should be an open debate about it, but that's the only position I'm taking here. But nobody said a word when The Guardian endorsed the coup in Bolivia, which is destroying the lives of millions of indigenous people. No one said a word about The Guardian's relentless support for regime change in Venezuela, in Syria, and nobody at The Guardian, not only were they silent, The Guardian was just as an institution, obviously supportive of the bogus campaign to destroy Jeremy Corbyn and so many people in the Labor Party, including a disproportionate number of minorities in the Labor Party, on the basis of their sympathy for Palestinians and the Palestinian struggle. So the contradictions of hyperliberalism play out in these institutions because one of the few grounds of contention is our social issues. But there's no contention over issues of war and peace, over issues of empire, because all of these liberals, hyper-liberals particularly, who are no longer interested in you know, things like big government and unions uh, or class struggle, they are united on all of that. And so that's why I think this, this letter has been so blown out of proportion from critics and supporters of it. Yeah, among the signatories, you mentioned the campaign against Jeremy Corbyn. Among the signatories of this letter in Harper's was Paul Berman, who 
relentlessly smeared Jeremy Corbyn as an anti-Semite. And why? Because Jeremy Corbyn stands up for minimal Palestinian rights and also for social justice and anti-Semitism. The weaponization of anti-Semitism has been a very convenient way to silence people of conscience like Jeremy Corbyn. We should mention there are a couple of people on there who I think actually stand by the values of open debate. Noam Chomsky, Zephyr Teachout, who you mentioned before, she was a signatory too. But it's striking how much they are in the minority. And I, I wanted to make a point about, you know, you're talking about how just this this shift towards being, uh, quote unquote, woke or pretending to be woke while d- ignoring, you know, violence being perpetrated in our names against people abroad. It's also a way there's also ways in which it can be used to literally justify militarist policies explicitly. And I think Russiagate offers some stark example where this fake wokeness ultimately serves a really dangerous agenda. So take the fact that there's all this professed concern for the fact that Russia supposedly suppressed the African-American vote. I mean, we're going to have a lot of problems. And the thing we have to do is get enough people to turn out so that they can't, you know, steal those votes through suppression in Wisconsin or convince blacks not to vote in Michigan, all the stuff that they did this last time, which was very effective. And the Russians played a big role in. And there are people who pose and pretend as if they care about African-American voters by saying that they're concerned about Russian bots. Well, really, what are they actually saying? First of all, they're showing such contempt for African voters to suggest that they could be duped by these African-American voters, excuse me, for African-American voters. Uh, to suggest that they could be duped by these stupid Russian social media ads that barely mentioned the election and that no one even saw. And it also serves to deflect from all the real issues that suppress the African-American vote, including literal voter suppression in the U.S. And to suggest that somehow standing up to Putin is a way to defend black people. I mean, there's not only are you showing contempt for the issues black people face here in the U.S., but then you're also encouraging in the name of wokeness an actual uh, and actually a very aggressive confrontational posture that only benefits the weapons industry and the military industrial complex, people who benefit from war, which then naturally, as it is designed, takes away from all the all the money and resources that could be used to you know spend on social spending here at home. In 1949, sorry not 1949, at the end of the McCarthy era, uh, J. Edgar Hoover was so terrified about the continuation of the Communist Party and socialist organizing in the U.S., as well as the growth, not only of the civil rights movement, but of black militancy, that he initiated the COINTEL program to basically destroy the left. Um, He specifically said he was worried about the rise of a black messiah. Um, And what they used were psychological, they used psychological warfare um, and techniques to undermine the left and as well as force, the murder of Fred Hampton. The point is that we're witnessing a repurposing of that counterinsurgency campaign in a much more sophisticated form. And it's playing out through the co-optation of the left. And the Russiagate was a very effective counterinsurgency weapon. As you pointed out, there was we heard a lot about um, Russia supposedly attempting to control black voters and black people in general, including the Black Lives Matter movement through remote control. Um, this was actually, this to me spoke to the fear of the US national security state 
and the FBI of the Black Lives Matter movement. And, and you know, what we've seen since then, in, you know, we saw, you know, stories in the New York Times and um, senators, including Kamala Harris, claim that the Take a Knee movement, which Colin Kaepernick helped popularize within the NFL, was uh, actually inspired by Russian active measures. You know, people have said, if you look at, for example, the whole, remember the whole, the heat that ended up around the bend the knee and Colin Kaepernick. Mm -hmm. Many smart people have said it actually was not a thing. Mm -hmm. The Russian bots started taking that on. Really? Yes. You feel like you're being targeted by Russian bots now? Well, we already know we are. This is an attack on the Black Lives Matter movement, as well as an attempt to divide people and frighten people of black militancy. Um, but we're also seeing an attempt before our eyes to co-opt the Black Lives Matter movement. And I saw it inside the protests when the NGO class came out that the militancy slowly died down. The protests began to police themselves. I mean, they're in a totally different phase right now. But I saw it. I heard people start to chant, vote him out. Um, let's focus on November. We saw Al Sharpton call for a march, a big march in August, instead of supporting what's currently happening. Um, we're now seeing BlackLivesMatter.com. Not, I'm not talking about the Black Lives Matter movement as a whole, but BlackLivesMatter.com, the sort of official movement, uh, which is led by people like Elizabeth Warren endorser Alicia Garza, start a new campaign to register voters and sheepdog people into the Democratic Party. We, if we look at the uh, African-American intellectuals that are promoted by hyper-liberal publications like The Atlantic um, and sponsored by the foundations and the kind of arguments they're making, uh, and, the, you know, and then we, we have to question why figures like Glenn Ford, truly black radical writers that are around publications like Black Agenda Report, never gain this kind of promotion and are never able to publish in mainstream papers. This is a counterinsurgency campaign that is very atomized. It's not being directed in the same way as in the past. And it's about co-opting militancy and social movements and dragging them back into the graveyard of social movements, which is today's Democratic Party. I mean, starkest example, taking this back to the primary where Bernie Sanders undoubtedly had the program that would most benefit the most uh, black people in this country just with this program, just by virtue of him supporting Medicare for all, uh, free college tuition, more social spending, uh, less spending on the military. And the cynical line of attack on him that somehow he had some kind of him and his supporters had some kind of problem with white supremacy. And there's been this whole sort of new cottage industry ar around that, basically, it seems like where you you can get published, you can get on, you can get on MSNBC if you're willing to say that people like Bernie Sanders who are talking about class issues somehow have some problem with racism. Yeah, and, and, and that's why Elizabeth Warren turned towards that intersectional rhetoric to peel off support from Bernie Sanders. It's the rhetoric that Hillary Clinton used. And these Hillary Clinton is someone who previously referred to black people as super predators. But, you know, we can see how hyper-liberal identity politics is used as a weapon against working people's movements against a ruling class. And so that's that's where I see the contradiction in a lot of the debates around this letter. Um, 
And I think the most important thing to do if you actually really want structural change is to be aware of how the social movements right now, which are still currently in the street, are being deliberately co-opted. All right, Max Blumenthal, editor of The Gray Zone, author of The Management of Savagery. Thanks very much. Thanks a lot.